the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us here on this Thursday afternoon. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk. And you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Uh, well, Christianity Today had an article just the other day called uh, titled this, Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor, but now they're leaving church. Mm. Uh, subheaded, the income gap in the U.S. corresponds with a church attendance gap. So let me just read some of this, uh, and then we'll dive into it. It says, it's well established that the gap between the middle class and those who earn the highest incomes in the U.S. has grown wider over time, spurring partisan responses over how or whether to address income inequality. But there's a facet of this issue that should be particularly worrisome to Christians. Many of the poorest Americans are abandoning church in mass. By stepping away from church communities, the people who are most financially strapped also end up losing out on social networks and social capital, which can make their economic situation and outlook even worse. So this article, the author says, to test the relationship between religion and socioeconomic status, uh, he took four income brackets adjusted for inflation over the time from the General Social Survey and calculated the share that said they never attended religious services. Mm. The change over the last 46 years was stunning, he writes. In the 1970s, the difference in church attendance among the four income groups was relatively small, about 5%. That gap has widened significantly over the last four decades, with a noticeable spike in recent years. In 2018, a quarter of the wealthiest Americans reported never attending services, while the share of those in the bottom bracket who never darkened a church door was over 35%. In essence, the inequality gap in attendance has now doubled. Right. The growing social gap between rich and poor extends beyond church attendance as Americans in the lowest income bracket report being increasingly isolated from their own communities as well. So let me just stop there for a second. Do, does this even as a concept, uh, is this anything you've ever even thought about and does it surprise you? Oh yeah, for sure. I, I think that there is a lot to be said about um, and it is important, I think, to consider context. I think good <laughs> cultural hermeneutic is to pay attention to the actual city or town or village yeah. that you find yourself in. You know, it feels like in some ways, you know, a lot of people are talking about like church diversity, particularly ethnic diversity. Mm-hmm. But if your church is in the middle of a predominantly Caucasian city, mm-hmm. then, you know, maybe it's understandable that your church would reflect that. I think that's actually, you know, in some ways, maybe the most authentic expression of the context you're in it can almost feel disingenuous actually like how do we how do we get more people of color you're like well your city doesn't really maybe that's a city-wide question not just a church-wide one but this one in particular though i think is 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 one that um i've actually thought a lot about because you know i grew up outside detroit 
having seen and experienced certain things and then lived in Elgin and now I'm pastoring a church in Naperville. And those are three very different cities with very different socioeconomic makeups. And I think um, I'm surprised that the gap has grown that much, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think I just sort of assumed that with the with the the passing decades that churches have just been more specialized, that you saw mm-hmm. more um, people in context where they just, you know, looked more like the other people in their community. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the case necessarily. And I think that, again, sh- should concern us, especially if, you know, if the people who ran to Jesus are the ones that want nothing to do with our churches, that should that should give us pause at the very least. And I think that this article is – Exposing some of the some of the data behind that, and something really interesting. You you especially talk about community all the time. Uh, the author found that not only is church attendance uh, changing based upon your income level, but just social isol- isolation as well. He says in recent decades, the move away from church attendance has corresponded with greater social isolation overall for Americans in the lowest income bracket. They have not replaced their church fellowship with other networks serving the same function. So basically his point is this. The other part of the data in this article is that that people in lower income brackets are actually more isolated as well. Yeah. They have less opportunities for socializa- socialization, uh, for socializing, and uh, less they have less of it in their lives. So it's not that they are leaving for some other community. Uh, what the author is saying is that people in the lower income brackets are not only part of their isolation is their removal of themselves from the church. It's not like they're going from here to there, but in fact that they're isolated. And as people who talk about community all the time, this seems like it even adds fuel to the fire of uh, kind of what you were talking about of like, this is something we need to have a conversation about and try to figure out. Hmm. I, I wonder too how they measure what do they call them social activities. Like I'd be curious to know how they measure that too. So the premise is that people with more money have more resources for social activities, right? Yep. So they're going out to events and gatherings. I don't necessarily know that that's a one to one that people uh, in lower income situations are less social. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're going to less social activities. I think that's but what it, he means. Yeah. In my experience, social though, networks. I think he says. Yeah. Yeah, but still though, in and again, that's that's one metric. But I think for for a lot of in a lot of low income communities that I've been a part of, the community, the neighborhood actually is far more social than in a lot of these mm. like gated communities, these wealthy neighborhoods where everyone kind of drives right into their two car garage. Interesting. So they don't actually know their neighbor. So it's true that there's less resources for a night out of the town, mm. but I wonder in their actual like day to day living though, would would we actually say that the people at the top of that mm. of that uh, economic chain would they would we call them more social? I don't I don't know about that. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you can read some of his research here on the article, but I, what I would say is, uh, let me ask you this question. You did a good job earlier saying, you know what, as churches, we often talk about being multi-ethnic, even though that may not be what our, our area looks like. Uh, and that's becomes a problem, not just for the church, but for the city, as you said, what do you think, what is the answer for churches here? Uh, I know there's no magic bullet, but what are the answers for becoming more, um, (laughs) multi- income level of actually being this type of community that this author is talking about, because a lot of times churches can just provide handouts or be uh, almost patronizing to people at lower incomes. And nobody wants to be a part of a community like that. How is genuine community built across income levels in a, in a place like a church? Honest. I think a lot of it 
comes down to who's at the table. Mm. You know, if if only if you're let's just say hypothetically, you're a church that wants to like lean into the idea that maybe maybe you want to become more reflective of the diversity of your community and the only people making those decisions are a bunch of wealthy white men. Mm. Like that that might be part of if not a big part of some of the struggle some of the issues so again if it's a if it's a wealth discussion and the only people that are making any of those missiological decisions are people at the very top of the wealth pyramid and that's tough because you know if you if you want to actually invite people to the table you might get answers that you're not super (laughs) excited about um i i think that's that's also worth noting i realize that's difficult but if if I think that's part of why people often feel like these attempts from churches can feel disingenuous because the first question is, well, who's weighing in on this? Mm-hmm. Who have you invited to the discussion? Like, oh, it's uh, the same as always. Yeah. Like, well, maybe starting there. Maybe because I think that's often how we've screwed up missions, right, where we decide what this country over there needs. Yeah. So we fly over and tell them, hey, you need this. And they're like, if you would have just asked us, <laughs> we actually don't need that. We need this, this, and this. Yeah. I think the same thing is for church. I also think church planning is a big part of it. Yeah. You know, like I'm in Naperville, and I think the the diversity even of our 10 locations, our 11 locations throughout Chicagoland, is that they're in very uniquely different spots. Mm-hmm. And so you lead according to those contexts. And so there's a lot of unity in like these shared resources, but also – autonomy to like yeah. lead in Aurora and Plainfield and Lincoln Park, you know, in a way that reflects that community. I think that's important too. Yeah. And he ends the article. It's impossible to know if poor Americans left the church because they didn't feel welcome or if they left because they don't have the time or energy to attend. Either way, the income inequality that is ravaging the American economy is also taking a toll on our communities. Churches used to be used to be a way to bridge this divide, but even there, the gap between haves and have-nots is growing mm. larger. That's Ryan Burge at Christianity Today. We'd encourage you to read that article. Uh, give us your thoughts on Facebook on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Well, uh, you're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. I could, you, I could handle having this music below us the whole segment, yeah, man. It's real jazzy, man. <laughs> I got to like it. Sweet. We're just kind of going with it. Uh, Ian and I, we often say as pastors, we love to hear ourselves talk. But one thing we love even more is to have people in here. <laughs> I've to, never said that for the oh, record. I, you, I could tell, though. I can tell. That's gross. We uh, probably so. our favorite thing. Uh, probably our favorite thing since we started this show is to have people in studio specifically, uh, just to have a conversation. And with that in mind, we are super excited to be joined by Dave and Debbie Sanders. Thank you guys for joining us today. Hey, You're we, welcome. It's great Thank to you. be here. Absolutely. Well, uh, rather than me just reading about you and you kind of you know listening about yourself, why don't you tell us a little <laughs> bit about you guys? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, my most. Um, Important thing that I can say is I was Ian's professor. Uh, we're going to get into that. <laughs> All right. right. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The most important day. There's still an outstanding assignment. That, uh, You're probably to, not wrong. To bring up on the radio. I think there I are, still have some library books, actually. Say, there's probably still some work not done yet. We have some lovely stories. Well, we're all out of time on the show today. Well, Debbie and I have been married for 45 years, which for some people is an eternity. and uh, But for us, it's like... Um, it's a ramp up to eternity. So that's, <laughs> I, that was that was good, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah that's that really good. good. Huh? It sounds exhausting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Says Dave's wife. Yes. Well, um, 
And uh, I think back, uh, as we think back over that time, you go, you know, this is the person that God has used most in my life to shape me. Mm. And uh, so we've been shaped by each other. We've been shaped by the communities we've been a part of, which has been several things um, in places in the world. We've been part of the uh, military community when I was oh, wow. in, in the Army very early. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's a, a band of brothers kind of thing that um, happened early on. Then we went into ministry and, and uh, we're with Young Life for about 23, 23 or so years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So community of Young Life people all over the world. We spent 15 years back working with the military and doing youth ministry on military bases in Europe. And so the European environment, we were in Sicily for a while and then we went to Germany for another 15 years. And so. And that was with Club Beyond, Young Life and yeah, Youth Young Christ. Life, Youth the Christ uh, together. So wow. those, those communities of people. Then we mm-hmm. were at Judson for 15 years, mm-hmm. Judson University. And that's a place that shapes lives, that shapes <laughs> the world. <laughs> yes, good, and it's a Debbie. good day to be a <laughs> Judson <laughs> Eagle. Eagle. Yes. <laughs> that's for you, Dr. Kroom. <laughs> he is sat right in that chair. Yes. <laughs> that's right. So it, that's a whole other community. And now... God has called us to something pretty special. We've um, semi-retired from uh, being a professor, although I'm still personally leading a um, uh, the Master of Leadership and Ministry mm-hmm. program, a director of that. But we can do that from distance now, and so we're living in Southern Virginia. As I told you guys, it's about 20 minutes from anywhere. The closest, <laughs> closest town that people might know, although the real close town is Farmville, but that's a real name. It's a real name. Yes. It's not, not just yes. a hat, not just a. We well, that's the big city. <laughs> it, it, it the metropolis of Farmville. Farmville, right? Uh, not too far from Lynchburg, but Appomattox, where they say the the nation was reunited, uh, is yeah. the way the tagline there. So, mm. if you any of you know Civil War history, that's where Lee surrendered to Grant, pretty much the end of the the Civil War. Wow. So. We live in an also an Amish community is all around us, so mm-hmm. that's kind of cool too. So these are new things we're we're looking at. Um, uh, and we're we're actually doing it, uh, developing a uh, retreat and farm, uh, and it's really designed to be a place for pastors, uh, Christian missionaries, missionaries wow. Christian workers mm-hmm. to come and and uh, a bit of soul care. That's kind of a, a theme of ours these days. I love it's that. Called, awesome. uh, we've called it the Shepherd's Tavern. Shepherd's Tavern. I love that. Well, okay. So just cards on the table, so people are aware. Uh, Dave and Debbie are among. My favorite people on planet Earth, and they're honestly, <laughs> honestly, very few people who have shaped my life as much as you have, Dave. And mm. in fact, when Dave and uh, Warren's Bird Hero Maker came out, uh, they asked us to make videos about people who have most influenced us. And I made a, a video talking about Dave Sanders and Warren Anderson. So both oh. of them have been on the show now. So personally, it is a thrill just to have you guys on the show because I think the world should know who you are and what you're doing. <laughs> so we have a doc of like topics that we could cover, yeah. which is about 12 items long. Uh, missions, ministry, shepherd's tavern, holy land, higher education, care, Sabbath. <laughs> All things that I would love for us to talk about. But you landed talking about shepherd's tavern, though. Could you talk to us a little bit more about how that dream even became a reality and what sort of your hopes for it in the future are? Well, um, we've always had a life of hospitality. Mm. So when you're overseas and you're traveling around, people opening your home. So it was always something that we had as a part of our culture. Mm. So uh, it was a natural fit that when uh, we came to Judson, obviously we wanted to open our homes to students. So in I took the Master of Leadership and Ministry course. I was in the first cohort, and my final project was all about the value and the power and the need for people in ministry to have Sabbath rest yeah. and to be take sabbaticals. Yeah. And so from that, we just kind of formed the idea that we need to pre- 
be about creating a space that's safe and affordable for people in ministry to come. That's amazing. So that's really kind of, although it had been growing and increasing during that time, it really was solidified during my final project that's with awesome. the MLM. I love that. As a pastor who got to go on sabbatical about a year and a half ago, I give Bravo. a big Ryan. thumbs up to Rub this. It big Bravo. thumbs up. Bravo. <laughs> uh, I'm curious. Uh, it, it sounds like it was a little theoretical, like you were saying, I think this is, but I'm sure that you're just seeing just worn out pastors and missionaries and stuff. Why do you think it is that people in ministry get so worn out and don't take these breaks and why, maybe on the positive side, why it's so necessary? Part of Debbie's research actually uh, got into that and and all the statistics that are done with pastors and in, in churches, uh, what you find out is a lot of times pastors don't think they can leave because mm. the church can't do without them. Yeah. Right, right. Well, conversely, the church doesn't think the pastor can leave because they don't think they can do without the pastor. <laughs> right. So right. you got this kind of perfect storm of, yeah. of uh, kind of like savior complex. You yeah. Know? yeah, I mean, it's and, and what what really happens is when the pastor leaves for, you know, a month or three months or whatever, however long the sabbatical can be, uh, all of the people in the congregation, their gifts start emerging. And, the, and when the pastor comes back, they're stronger and healthier and better. Congregation stronger, mm. healthier, better, and the church works better because both are now healthy. Interesting. Right. And but the but the leading into it sounds scary and fearful, and and nobody wants to do it. Yeah. Right. We come from an area. We just went to a uh, a meeting of um, uh, the the presbytery, kind of in that area. Mm. And what ended up happening is they talked about the average size church was what forty five people, mm. something like that. Mm. In all these churches across this rural kind of area. And some of the pastors were literally going two and three churches. They'd start, they'd preach at wow. nine o'clock. They'd drive 20 minutes to the next church, no little kidding. church, and they'd preach there. And so, and try to keep up with all the births, deaths, sickness, right. uh, birthdays, uh, you know, everything. Wow. And it's, it is a, a, um, it's a script that says uh, burnout. Yeah. yeah right. Completely. No and one of the, one of the pastors there said, yeah, we're, we're finding um, young we can't re- attract young people here as pastors because they can't. Nobody can hire them fully. Yeah, and the and the middle age or older pastors are just getting completely burned out. Wow, that's fascinating. With well, that, those voices here, Dave and Debbie Sanders, we are excited. There's so much to talk about. We've just scratched the surface, so they're going to stay with us here for another couple segments. Uh, maybe the last segment we'll talk about Ian's grades. Maybe I don't, maybe I don't we'll, think we have to go. I'll tell you just right now. Bad. Did you that bring it? Did yeah. you bring the trip? <laughs> I think you brought the transcript like I asked you to. And, oh, uh, <laughs> this is going to be fun. This, oh, it will be. <laughs> anyway, we're excited to have Dave and Debbie Sanders join us here, and they're going to stay with us. We hope you do, too. For Ian Sanders, I'm Brian Fromm. This is The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life my name is brian Fromm, joined by ian simpkins oh if you were with us in the last uh, segment you uh, for the first time in our 10 months i got your name wrong <laughs> i've always felt like a sanders though anyway i think that's right. we are our joined son. we are joined by dave and debbie sanders and at the end of the last segment i called him ian sanders so it's it's more accurate than you realize we though could be dave and debbie simpkins yeah, we'll like. yeah. hey at the end of this nine minutes i don't know what i'm gonna call you guys we'll see what you might not even be dave and debbie by the 
the end of this, right? <laughs> yes, we're excited to have Dave and Debbie Sanders with us. So many fascinating things in your guys' bio, but one of the uh, one of the threads, the overarching threads here, is a clear um, uh, emphasis on soul care uh, and this concept also of spiritual direction. Can you talk to us a little bit, the people out there? What do you even mean when we talk about soul care? Soul care, <laughs> simply put, is caring. For the soul. <laughs> Hold on, let me write that down. One second. That's profound. Mm-hmm. You know, as simple as that does sound, it actually is a little bit more profound because mm-hmm. we talk a little, a lot about health and yeah. um, uh, what to eat, what to drink, how to exercise, these kinds of things, and and then we go 110 miles an hour, right? And our soul is a mess, hmm. and we haven't actually stopped, paused, spent time, uh, literally just listening. Yeah. Um, and so soul care, while it sounds um, obviously simple, is not simple at all. Uh, I I have been teaching up until this last year with um, students, and to have them put that device down, mm. cell phone, and spend 20 minutes in silence is usually, uh, one, very unnerving. Mm. Secondly, it's um, very unusual. Yeah. And... Uh, they're willing to do it, but they have to be actually called to do it and, right. and a space provided to do it. Hmm. Uh, so a lot of this uh, with soul care and with spiritual direction, I think, is about creating space. Mm-hmm. Um, Henry Nouwen uses the word hospitality, mm-hmm. which is not just about welcoming somebody and giving them a cup of coffee. It's about creating a space inside of uh, your relationship where they can be who they are. Hmm. So spiritual direction, uh, Debbie has gone through a spiritual direction program called Selah and uh, mm. is now an official spiritual director. Yay! Yay! <laughs> um, and basically, uh, that is a person who sits with another person and does create this space for listening to what God is saying to that person hmm. by asking some questions, by probing. But it's not a counselor. They're not, not, not there to try to answer and, and fix something for someone. They're really there to help that person um, be in a place where they can actually listen to what the Lord is saying to them. Right. So the spiritual director doesn't always know what the Lord is saying to them, but to mm. help them prepare for that space mm-hmm. enough to actually listen and to um, uh, engage with what the Lord is saying to them. Yep. So, Debbie, have you found that people have been receptive to that, the church in general? Because I, I know that sometimes the church historically has not necessarily welcomed with open arms some of these areas of spiritual direction and, and counseling and therapy? Like, what has been your experience thus far from the church and other Christians? Have people been receptive to it? I think it is growing in um, popularity and understanding within the Protestant faith. Mm-hmm. And the Catholic faith probably, and maybe the Orthodox uh, Episcopalians, they are a little bit more familiar with it. It's more part of their language. Right. But the evangelical Christians are beginning to see the value mm-hmm. of allowing that that space. Just like we talked about Sabbath and sabbaticals and the value of that. It's giving ourselves permission to just pause and allow that space in our life right. instead of filling our life with so much can we just be still with that? You know, yeah. be still and know that I'm God. That that really has tremendous value in allowing the um, uh, craziness of our life mm-hmm. to settle down and for us to be very lean into mm. what God is saying. So a director is only there just helping to provide that permission, provide that safe place hmm. for the directee 
to listen attentively to what the Spirit is saying to them by asking questions of contemplation. We try to avoid leading questions, and we try to avoid uh, yes and no, because you want them mm. to enter into what the Spirit is telling them at that particular moment. So that. the next time I see my directee or I talk to my directee a month later or two months later, um, they have gone on, hopefully, with their relationship with God, and they, we, we, we will not circle back necessarily mm. to that. And it's not my role to bring them back to that. So right. it's very exciting. It's very uh, enabling uh, others to mm. learn how to listen and be still. I love that. Interesting. What would be some yellow flags, red flags for people where it's like, we all need soul care, but like you desperately need it. You're on a bad path right now. Because a lot of people out there, they just run harder, harder, right, harder. Right. What would be some warning signs for people, do you think? I would say that uh, when somebody says they don't need soul care. <laughs> ah, that's good. That's or, the first red flag. Oh, or I can't afford to have soul care. Yeah. Or I'm just way too busy. Things will fall apart. Um, you know, if the calendar is filled up and they're not spending time with their family, they're not spending time yeah. uh, reading the scriptures themselves, not for the motivation of preaching, but hmm. for the motivation for their souls <laughs> to be transformed. I'm feeling attacked like right now. Right? <laughs> yes. All right, so well, some, we all do it, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah in Christian for sure. Ministry, we, we go like, oh, my gosh, I got a Bible study. I need to read something for that. Yes. All right. As opposed to. I mean, another rendering of be still that I really like is cease striving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cease striving and know that I'm God. Right. Means let let go. Stop pushing into the – I had this picture that I wanted to get but never did, and it was in England, and I've never gone back to get it. But it was a, a <laughs> I can plow hear the horse, <laughs> a, a workhorse straining into the harness, with, and every sinew and muscle was just popping hmm. out because it was so much force being put into – plowing hmm. and and i wanted that picture with the verse underneath it that says cease striving hmm. and know that i'm god because like take the weight off of the harness right pull back uh, understand who's really in control who's really sovereign uh, i think i think we think it's a great thing to really be busy and do all this stuff uh, i think it's actually a statement that says i don't trust god with all this hmm. or you're not being a very effective leader in passing on responsibilities and uh, right. Things that they can be doing in their gifts. That's you know, right. How can we encourage others to use their gifts? And part of that is learning to be humble and step back mm. and, and allow there to be space for that time of thinking. Something I'll never forget, Dave, you spoke at my ordination, actually, which was now, I think, 49 years ago, <laughs> if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, but you, and I still have it, actually. It's on my desk. It, you gave me this uh, little stuffed horse, and it was this military example of a general in the battle sits upon a horse, which the benefit, it gives them a greater view of the battle at hand, but it also makes them much easier to target. And yep. that was such an impacting illustration for me entering into this new season of leadership. Can you unpack that a little more for people? Because Brian and I are both pastors in very different contexts, but it's something that we talk a lot about, especially when you're talking about soul care and Sabbath and how often leaders are the ones that are the worst at seeking these things out because, like you were saying, we believe if I hit pause, then this whole thing falls apart. What what are some other cautions maybe you, you would give to leaders in particular that don't recognize, hey, you have a better vantage point, but you're also a, a bigger target. Yep. Well, yeah, I think you have to start with the idea that um, we have an enemy. Yeah, right. And, um, and he wants to kill you. <laughs> if he can't kill you, he wants to make you very ineffective. <laughs> and the best way to do that is to cause some sort of ego failure, moral failure, <laughs> those things that we're also susceptible to as human right, beings. Right. And that's why I use that, that example of 
you've been issued a horse. Mm-hmm. When you have leadership, you've been issued a horse, which means, you know, kind of using the Civil War example of Gettysburg, that movie, is that these generals and colonels had horses, which meant they were above the battlefield. They could direct troops and how they needed to go. Mm-hmm. And they were the targets of the snipers on the other side right. because they're sitting on top of the horses. Right. Nobody's going to shoot into just a general pile of men on the ground. Hmm. They're going to shoot at the people <clears throat> that, are, that are on yeah. the horses, right. which means once that person's gone, all the guys on the ground are in disarray, Yeah. which means if you're in some sort of pastoral leadership or Christian ministry leadership, you know, and all of us know of moral failures that happen, and it 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 wipes out the troops on the ground hmm. for a while till they can get their equilibrium again. And so mm-hmm. it's a much greater strategy, if you know, thinking military strategy mm-hmm. as I do sometimes. If I'm the enemy, I'm going after the leader because it sends ripples through all of the congregation mm-hmm. or all the people that they're leading. And uh, and it's hard to, for some people to recover. And, yeah. and literally, some people don't recover. That's and right. They, go, they, they blame the church. They blame all sorts of things. And so... Right. It's so critical because you're in a leadership position on a horse that you realize the need for caring for your own soul. Mm. It's not selfish. Mm. It's actually uh, thinking about others when yeah. you when you actually uh, care for your soul. That's really oh, good. That's good. And convicting. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. With that, you're listening to Dave and Debbie Sanders. They're going to join us for one more segment. Thanks for listening to us for Ian Simpkins. That's me. My name is Brian Fromm. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joined us. We have the privilege of being joined again by Dave and Debbie Sanders. Thank you guys for taking the time and doing this. We're really appreciative. Thank you. Yep, thanks. <laughs> oh, is that my cue? Yep. Brian just looks at me longingly like, you talk longingly? now. All right, so before before I ask this question, um, can you tell me a little bit about the program at Judson that you mentioned earlier in the show that I know you teach and you were enrolled in, and it's yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, Debbie actually uh, was in the first cohort. We call it the Master of Leadership and Ministry. Ooh. It's um, 36 hours and rightly priced and <laughs> everything is included in this program so An all-inclusive package all inclusive, which means books logo software israel, oh, really? experience to israel wow we go to the holy land for two weeks we have two courses over there wow it's all included in the price so you know if you're comparing apples and apples you'll find hey this is a this is an amazing uh cost but mm-hmm. also it's designed for people if you're in a particular denomination and you were going to the pastorate, this probably isn't your thing because mm-hmm. they're, they're going to look for you to take uh, courses from their seminaries and that kind of thing. Right. But it, it is uh, aimed at um, people in ministry leadership, hmm. which is, as you know today, much broader than it used to be. Yes. So uh, people that are in, you know, organizations like Young Life or Awanas, as well Food as in churches. Food for the poor. That's right. the poor. Right. I mean, people that, that um, want to understand uh, how ministry leadership really works and take it to the next level. Hmm. Uh, This is a great program. Uh, It's very innovative. It's mostly online with a few face-to-face. That's awesome. So you can be in Taiwan and just come to America couple times. That's amazing. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? So they, that's judsonu.edu. They can learn more. That, that's where they go. Judsonu.edu. Look under the um, 
graduate programs, and it's called the Master of Leadership and Ministry. That's awesome. Thanks for asking about it. Oh, my pleasure. All right, so what I want to ask you next, then, is uh, something, and like cards on the table, I'm being a little selfish in asking this question. As I mentioned in the first segment, Dave, you are, in my life, one of the clearest pictures of a mentor that I've ever had. Typically, when I'm talking with other people about oh, a mentor of mine said, uh, I'm speaking of one of three people, and you're one of them, and I think... When I was 19, 20, 21, 22, I don't think I realized just how much I needed that. And by the grace of God, you took a chance on a punk kid like me that was not getting good grades, wasn't <laughs> really well. I mean, I wasn't focused. I, I had all sorts of different passions and interests. And I think I look back now 15 years later and realize like what a gift the two of you have been in investing in me in a really like holistic, meaningful way. And I think... I think I've carried that into my ministry roles to really, really care for intergenerational ministry, something that I feel like often the church totally misses the mark on because it's easier. It's easier just to minister to the people that look and talk and act and think just like you, right? That's obviously easier. Can you talk a little more to the value of intergenerational ministry mm-hmm. and why, why is it so difficult to do and what are maybe some ways forward? Okay, that's a lot there. That's a lot yeah. of questions. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm really happiest about being just a picture of mentoring, <laughs> not like a real mentor. But uh, I see what you did there. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I got into this uh, generational study stuff probably about 10 years ago, uh, maybe a little bit before that, and uh, uh, actually teach a course uh, in one of the adult programs at Judson about this. And um, I began to realize... It's easy to use things like this to categorize people and go like, oh, you're a Gen Xer, yeah, you're right, a right. millennial, you're a, you know, whatever. And, and that's not the point. The point is to say there are clearly some uh, characteristics that develop mm-hmm. over around historical time periods. Uh, and a generation is considered uh, by the experts uh, about a 20-year span. Hmm. We're doing some... Some weird stuff with it now and saying, you're a premillennial and you're a, right, right. You're a Gen Z, and, which I don't like that term at all. <laughs> well, We're going to run out of letters, for, for too. Another, so yeah. I know. Yeah, we are uh, out of them right now. It's like, Z, then what? Z or AA? Z squared. I don't think they want to be Gen AA. Yeah, true. something about them. So as I have learned and teach about this, I go, um, I'm a, clearly a baby boomer. I'm in smack dab right in the middle of the generation. Right. Um, and yet, uh, if I understand how Gen Xers think and how millennials think and how the generation in front of me, the traditionalists think, uh, it really is helpful in the workplace, mm. uh, in in uh, a lot of different environments, not just the workplace, in churches. I mean, you guys have that. If you have any older people, you have mm-hmm. that that music thing, right? I oh, mean, of it's course. Always yes, an always. issue, right? Uh, it's always an issue how you do the service, whether it's uh, more contemporary, more traditional, these kinds of things. How loud it is, yeah. right? Yeah. Size yeah. of the I mean, font, all of it. Yeah, all of this stuff is <laughs> when you begin to understand how generations, for example, like the word respect. Everybody wants respect. Mm-hmm. What is respect? R-E-S-P. <laughs> sorry. That's my boomer song coming through. That's right. Some of you millennials so sorry you don't know that song. Yeah. Right? Uh, Aretha. Okay, so uh, um, respect for a traditionalist means you come to whatever you're doing and you dress nicely. Right. Men would have ties on. You uh, you understand hierarchical leadership and, and you respect the hierarchy and the leadership that way. Hmm. To a millennial, and you say respect, you want to be respected, they go like, yes. And you go like, well, what does respect mean to you? And they mean like, oh, well, 
uh, they want to hear my ideas. Mm. Like, oh, well, that's interesting. Completely different, right? Because if you don't want to hear my ideas, and I come into a meeting, and I've only been here three months, but I have, I have ideas, mm-hmm. and I have things I've observed, and I don't want to. I want to speak. And traditionalists are sitting there and say, first of all, you're in a T-shirt, <laughs> which shows you don't respect me, and secondly. You've only been here three months. You know nothing, right? Yeah. Okay, and and all of a sudden, both feel disrespected. Interesting. And neither one of them were trying to. So another one is is uh, look at the word work. What mm. does work mean to a traditionalist? What does work mean to a baby boomer, uh, Gen Xer, and a millennial? And you realize, wow, it's very different. It's from hammering something, making something, constructing, uh, fabricating something in the traditionalist time period to uh, baby boomers brought in ideas like. Um, Self-help, okay, mm. and then and then how service kind of industry became baby boomers. Like I serve you yeah. things, and mm-hmm. and so, and then uh, Gen Xers came along, and it was much more um, kind of conceptual things and entrepreneurial things and this kind of stuff. And, mm. and millennials come along, and they're sitting in Starbucks uh, with their computer, <laughs> right. and they're going like, "What are you doing?" And going, like, "I'm working." And working is ideas, mm. okay. So you go ideas, you know. Hammering a bridge together. I mean, these right. are completely different things, but they all think uh, it's work in their context. Okay, so beginning to understand those uh, differences and and use them for positives as opposed to using them for negatives. That's great. Can be really cool. So then you start diving into attitudes and values, where they come from. And a great one I like to use is music, because music is a culture carrier. So hmm. you look at music from different decades, and you see what's going on yeah. and, and how they express certain things, right? whether it's love or family or, or even religion. Hmm. Very, very, very different because of the, the generational views on that. That's so That's interesting. Fascinating. So with this, so thank you guys so much for doing this. With the last minute we have left, we always like to let our guests speak to people out there. Uh, so if someone's in their car right now and they just feel worn out, burnt out, and you guys, they're hearing you talk about soul care and they're, they're wrestling with it, maybe with a minute or so, give them a word of encouragement or maybe a, a challenge to of just um, paint a picture of hope for them. Um, well, through the process of being still before God, one of the verses that struck me was the idea of of God holding my hand, and it's in Psalm 37, and it talks about, though we are stumbling, though mm. I am stumbling, you are holding me. So it's the idea that we're not perfect, and we're going to stumble, but he is holding our hand. So despite all that's going on in our lives, it's just the realization of great God's great love yeah. for us. And his faithfulness to that's us, good. and that he has a hold of our hand. We are not alone. Oh, that's good. That was, I needed to hear that. That yeah, was really same. good. Dave and Debbie, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate this. Thanks for doing this all the way from Virginia. Thank yeah. you. Love you. And guys. happy come, Advent. Merry Christmas yes. to come you. Come visit us at the Shepherd's Tavern. That yeah. sounds really we'll do nice. We'll yes. from there next week. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Oh, well, they, we're very grateful for you guys joining us. For Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. Uh, you're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here, and after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was, and it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop 
a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to, to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common, our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Friday afternoon. Uh, we could not be more thrilled than we get the opportunity to sit down with Pastor Rick Warren tonight. Not humanly possible. It is Hi, guys. <laughs> it's good to be here. It's good to be with you. Oh, this is fun. Thanks for doing this. You and, bet. And uh, I, we always, you know, we usually get a nice long list of how to introduce people, but people know you. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious because By the way, let me just say my favorite introduction was, and here's Rick Warren of whom Billy Graham said, who? <laughs> 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 That's that a real story. That's a real story. No kidding. <laughs> how do you follow that? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I would, that might be the answer. I was, yeah, was going to ask it. you, how do you like to introduce yourself? Like when, with all kind of stuff that you've done, uh, how do you I, introduce yourself to people? I like the word Rick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm on. A, I'm on a first name basis with everybody. I want everybody to feel like I'm their best friend, and they're my best friend. Hmm. I, I genuinely do like people, and so. I don't use the doctor degree. I don't say reverend. I don't. You know, if people call me Pastor Rick, that's okay. But Pastor Warren, I go. You don't go to my church. If you call me Pastor Warren. Okay. So, in fact, when I'm in a in a grocery store, if somebody uses any other name than Hi Rick, yeah. I know they're not really members of the church, right? Because they know it's Rick. Right. I've been there for forty years, and it's just Rick. So that might actually surprise a lot of people. Yeah. I'm curious. Because like what Brian said, a lot of people are at the very least familiar with who you are. What might people be surprised to learn about like you as a person? Because I feel like we often, you know, we hold pastors and authors up on pedestals and they might be surprised to know this thing about you. Sure. Um, Well, every pastor is a human being. What? God only only uses flawed individuals. If God only used perfect people, nothing would get done. Yeah, right. And so uh, pastors have the same problems with doubts. Hmm. With fears, uh, with worries, yeah. uh, with depression, uh, you know, the, the full gamut of emotions, which, by the way, emotions are meant to be felt. Feelings are meant to be felt. Right, right. Uh, you know, you, you want to stuff them. You don't repress them. You don't suppress them. You express them and confess them. That's good. So uh, I think that, uh, like, with emotions like that, uh, God gave us emotions because he's an emotional God. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've been, you just said you've been at this 40 years, which is, yeah. I'm sure to you, you look back and go, wow. Yeah. Yeah. fast. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really wondering, fast. Uh, you've got many years ahead of you, hopefully, yeah. Lord willing, but when you look back over 40 years, uh, how is what you've experienced, you know, take you back to 40 sure, years ago, sure. what did you think this was all going to be like mm. and how has it been? Well, I certainly had no idea what it was going to look like. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people who are leaders claim to, you know, like have a perfect vision of what it's going right. to be like right. and then they're going to yeah. get there. And I've always said I have, like, Polaroid vision, mm. that you take the picture, and the longer you look at it, 
it starts get, coming into focus, hmm. like a Polaroid, yeah. and it gets clearer and clearer and clearer. And I, I don't think God ever gives us a map of our lives, then it wouldn't require any faith. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. right. Uh, what I think he does, it gives us a scroll. And you unroll a little bit, and you do what you see, and then you unroll a little bit more and do that. You unroll a little bit more and do That's that. Good. Because it would scare you to death. It would scare <laughs> me to death. Uh, actually, the first year of the church, on the last Sunday of Saddleback, I started Saddleback with one member, mm. you know, my wife, Kay. Right, right. Uh, she, I preached first sermon. She said it was too long. <laughs> and, oh, your wife too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I said, it's been downhill ever since. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so she still tells me it's too long 40 years later. But at the end of the first year, I was having so much as fun as a church planter. Hmm. I was doing all the preaching, teaching, praying, baptizing. Uh, I, I led 60 people to Christ the first year, wow. and I felt like the director of an orphanage. Oh, wow. I had no other staff. It was just literally just me. Wow. Wow. And on the last Sunday of the year of 1980, I stood up to speak and fainted. No kidding. From workaholism. Whoa. Physically? Physically like, just fell over. Wow. And that was very, very embarrassing. And that was bad enough, but what happened is I developed a phobia that if I went back and preached again, hmm. I, I would faint again. Right. Oh, you know, you know yeah. it's kind of like yeah. getting back on the horse kind of a thing. Yeah. So the first month of the year two, January two, 1981, I actually took four weeks off, got a friend to preach for me, and I, I took my wife and uh, kids out to Phoenix where her parents live. And I went out and I had my desert experience. Wow. No kidding. Uh, and spent a month in, in the Lord and, uh, with the Lord. And while I was out there, um, there were two big haunting fears going through my mind. Mm. One of them was, uh, God, I don't deserve this. You're mm. blessing too much. Mm. Oh, and wow. I thought, I, I'm unworthy. This church, this house, uh, I mean, church had grown from K&I to about 120, 30 people the first year, mm. which was a big deal for me. I'd never been a senior pastor. Yeah. Right. And, um, and I thought, I don't deserve to be a pastor. I don't deserve to be saved, much less be a pastor. Right. I'm a guy who has a difficult time just being consistent in a quiet time, <laughs> much less leading the church. Yeah, same. Uh, okay, so, <laughs> so I'm, I'm just going, you're, you're blessing me too much. Yeah. I don't deserve this. And the second fear was, I can't handle it. Hmm. And um, I, I thought, if, it ke- if the growth rate continues like that, within a few years, we'll be running 1,000. And that scared me to death. Right. The, the truth is, for us as pastors, we go to these growth conferences and we dream and we hear about great successes <laughs> uh-huh. and stuff like that. But if our church grew like that, it scares to death. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Absolutely. I think everybody has this secret inside fear of inadequacy. Uh-huh. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And it, it, it just comes out in different ways. Hmm. Um, so while I was out there with the Lord in the desert, uh, God said a couple, three things to me. And he said, uh, number one, you're right, Rick, you don't deserve it. <laughs> you're like spot on. <laughs> yeah, but you never will. Yeah. Right. Okay, it's yeah. all by my grace, and don't you ever get over the fact that it's your faith in my grace. Mm. Everything I dove in, do through you, for you, to you, in you, it's all by grace. Yeah. Right. And and so get over it. You're a trophy of grace. <laughs> so you, you won't ever deserve a trophy it. trophy of grace. I don't That's deserve good. to be saved, much less in the ministry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, but but I am. Uh, the other one is, is uh, God said, uh, whose church is it? Mm. Mm. I go, well, it, it's yours, Lord. You said I will build my church. And God says, good answer, Rick. Good, good, good answer. <laughs> two, You're right. Two and then two. he said something, guys, that really changed my life. Hmm. And this is like 40 years ago now. Yeah. And he said, you focus on building people 
and I'll build the church. Mm. That's good. And and that's where the whole purpose-driven yeah. thing came in. Purpose-driven is not a church growth strategy. It's a discipleship strategy. Mm. It's how to move people around the stages of spiritual growth from knowing Christ to loving Christ to loving his church to growing in Christ to serving Christ to sharing Christ. Right. Mm. And it's just a real simple process. Uh, and so I, I said, God, you got a deal. Hmm. Uh, I'll build people. You build the church. And I, I imagined myself getting up out of my chair in my office and go, okay, Jesus Christ, you're now the pastor of this church. And which to me, that meant ultimately it wasn't up to my creativity and ingenuity to make this thing work. Right. That it, it's, it's going to grow at the rate and speed yeah. God wants. And, and I don't really have to do anything about this. I just right. be faithful and do whatever God wants. That was like a mountain load of stress Absolutely. off me. That's amazing. And out of those two things, this happened. You know, if you're going to have losses, it's good to have them in preseason. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I like. I had, I had my. You know, you don't want to have a perfect season and then lose in the Super Bowl. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. And so I had my midlife crisis at 25. There you go. <laughs> All right. Which means I learned a lot of things. That's brilliant. In that first year, yeah. When because when I came out of that. Uh, I came out with a couple conventions, convictions that, yeah, it was all by grace mm. and ultimately God's responsibility. But number three, I'm God's man for that church until God calls me to do yeah. something else. I yeah. love that. And nothing can shake it, not criticism, not health issues, not other stuff. And so that was a big turning point. But then the Lord said two things to me. He gave me a verse out of Deuteronomy where God says to uh, Joshua, I'm going to drive these enemies out of the land. Mm. I'm going to give you the land, but you're not going to possess it all at once. I'm going to drive them out little by little because you can't handle it, Mm. and you will grow. And as you grow, then we'll slowly take over the the promised land. I'm going to give you what I promised. I'm just not giving it to you all at once. (laughs) And I call that pacing growth. And so, like today, I tell people, I say, I can teach you how to build a healthy church. I just can't teach you how to do it fast. Mm. Oh, that's good. Most people are like, nope, I want it now. Yeah, (laughs) right, right. It's taken me forever. And the truth is, those churches that grow instantly, like zero to 3,000, that's not real growth. Mm. What that is, is you're not fishing for men. It's trading fish from aquarium to aquarium. Right, right. Those only happen where there are a lot of Christians, (laughs) and they transfer over to the hot act in town. Right. And that's not great commission. That's not the kind of the growth we want to see. You guys want to see. That's right. That's right. That's not legitimate uh, growth. So, But anyway, the the second year of the church, I was depressed the whole year. Wow. The whole year? Yeah, for an entire year. Wow. And uh, because I came out of that, and I just had this fear of what – I felt like I was a failure, and my ministry hadn't even started. Hmm. It was only one year right. yeah. you know, into it. And I thought, and as most church planners feel in the first year, it all depends on me. Because mm-hmm. if you leave, it's going to fall apart. You right. know that. Right. Yeah. You know that's going to happen. That's right. And, you, and your goal is to grow out of that. Yeah. Hmm. So they're not dependent upon you. But that first year, uh, a second year, I was just going, I wasn't saying, God, build a great church. I was going, God, can I put one foot in front of the other and hmm. make it through Sunday? Yeah. Wow. That's and I, I, I would go home and, and get in bed after the services and sleep till Monday. And uh, mm. and it was a really rough year. But the stuff that I learned in that year of depression actually prepared me to handle an enormous amount of stress mm. and to balance a whole lot of balls at the same time that I would have never learned if I hadn't gone through that pain. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. sure. We're excited to be joined by Rick Warren today. You're listening to him here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really excited to be joined today uh, for multiple segments by Pastor Rick Warren. Uh, I'm curious, you brought up the purpose-driven life that most of us have read, most people listening mm-hmm. have read. Uh, <clears throat> are you, how to ask this question other than, are you surprised by the number of people who read it <laughs> and what yeah. happened with the book? Or did yeah. you feel like when you were writing this, this is, yeah. this is something that... that needs to be done. Talk well, us through I, that. When I was writing it, it took me um, seven months, 12 hours a day. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. Really? It took me seven months, 12 hours a day. I was very, very disciplined. What I would do is I would get up about 4.30 in the morning and uh, I, I just put on a pair of sweatpants and a shirt. <laughs> I wouldn't shower, shave, or eat breakfast. I was fasting till noon every day. No kidding. And I, and I would go to this little office light a candle because it was still dark outside at 4.30 in the morning. And I'd sit down and I'd start typing. And I'd start typing. And then I would type and retype and type and retype. And 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 then about noon, my ADD would kick in. Right, right. Okay, and I'd go, i got to get with people. Okay? Uh-huh. And so somebody would bring me lunch. I'd shower. I'd walk around the church campus for about an hour, go back at 1 and, and work from 1 to 5, and then go home eat dinner, play with my kids, and was in bed by bed at 8 o'clock. Hmm. And for seven months, I did no preaching. Oh, oh wow. no kidding. I didn't no know that. No preaching. Okay. Wow. Only Christmas and Easter. Only Christmas. It was almost like a sabbatical. Yeah. I was there at church. No staff meeting. And, and, wow. and interesting, during the seven months I was writing that book, the church actually grew by 800 people. <laughs> I'm going, maybe I should stay away more often. Yeah, right. Okay. No kidding. But that's the difference between personality-driven and purpose-driven. Yeah, that's so that good. When you've built the system, you don't have to be there. Right. Uh, how do you know when you have a personality-driven church, the pastor's tired all the time because mm. he feels like he's got to be pushing it, got to be pushing it. Right. And so when I was typing, uh, I knew that this – book was anointed, I didn't know it was going to be a success. Hmm. I mean, like it was going to sell a lot. Legitimately, you didn't know. No, I didn't know. But wow. as I'm writing it, many times I would be sobbing, hmm. literally sobbing as I'm writing and I'm going, man, I need this. Mm. I need this. And I would go, I'm not this good. Okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm just not this good. Yeah. Somebody's given me some stuff wow. here. Wow. And so I was typing it in. So I, I knew it was anointed, hmm. but I didn't know it was going to sell. You know, it's still, it's been out, what? 17 years, still selling a million copies a year. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> it just, That's it, nuts. It just passed 50 million. That's, it's the best-selling hardback in American history. Unbelievable. Yeah. In fact, it has two Guinness records. One is uh, best-selling nonfiction hardback in American history. And number two, it's the most translated book in the world now except for the Bible. No kidding. Uh, yeah, it's in 137 languages. And yesterday I just heard that it was uh, – uh, Daniel told me it was translated in Hmong, bootlegged. And I didn't know about it. I go, well, the test of good material is to get bootlegged. That's right. <laughs> okay. That's right. Said, okay. So if, if nobody's bootlegging it, it's, it's cruddy material. Right, okay. right. And somebody came back from Myanmar and said, hey, Rick, we saw Purpose Driven Life all over the country. It's up in the Himalayas. It's everywhere. Wow. The, the, the issue is it's cop. It's uh, it's um, photocopied, and it's by Ricky Warren. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I said, cool. There you go. But, you know, Give it to him. Go for it, yeah. man. That's amazing. So, yeah. I feel like so, if I had a Guinness World Record, I'd get like medals. I yeah, swear. yeah, yeah well, of course I, you would. <laughs> I actually have a couple Guinness records. One is on Purpose Driven Life, but another one is I've been collecting books hmm. all my life. Yeah. My mom was a seminary 
bookstore manager hmm. and then later was a librarian. And my dad was a pastor, and so I learned to love books. I started collecting books when I was 14. And uh, I, for many, many years, a couple decades, I read a book a day. Hmm. How do you say, how do you read a book a day? Big print, lots of pictures. <laughs> Not colored yet. Real tiny, <laughs> tiny books. One word per page. Okay. I have a two-year-old at home. I'm also reading a book a day. Those are yeah. good books. Uh-huh. But yeah. they count. That's right. They count. Okay. I've been keeping right. the wrong scoreboard this right. whole time. So today, I, my library, I have... Uh, uh, in regular books and ebooks, I have over uh, 160,000 books in my library. No it's, kidding. It's huge. It's, it's literally its own building that I had to use, uh, get to hold my library. So Guinness Book of Records sent three judges to my library, and they lived there for a week. Wow. And they went through every book <laughs> because I own the record for the most books autographed by the authors. No kidding. Yeah. 4,700 awesome. of those books. I have a I have Galatians commentary autographed by Martin Luther. No. Yeah. Really? I have wow. Jonathan Edwards and 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 uh, George Whitfield and Moody and Spurgeon and Whoa. all these handwritten hand signed stuff. Uh, uh, almost five thousand books by the authors. No that's, kidding. That's, by the authors, yeah. That's oh, remarkable. Well, that story's yeah. good. All right, so you're, you're talking about purpose driven. You're talking about yeah. forty years, and yeah. you're talking about this legacy and this origin story of legitimately yeah. standing before God, saying, "I don't, I don't deserve any of this. Right, I don't right. have, I don't have the chops. I don't right. have the." Right. What is it like to be Rick Warren? Today, like, does that ever become yeah. normative? Like, well, okay, yeah, people know who I am and who Saddleback is. Well, what's that like to be in your in your one head? One of the things, if if you're going to stay mentally sane, yeah, mm-hmm. first thing you have to realize that fame is worthless. Mm. <laughs> it literally is worthless, right? Because one minute you're a hero, right, and the next minute you're a zero, right? And and the media only has two stories: build you up and tear you down. That's right. Mm-hmm. So. Once you hit the top, it's all over anyway. Yeah. I've been on the cover, I don't know, 30 or so magazines, Time, Newsweek, U.S. Yeah, News. Right. Well, but as soon as that's over, then they start tearing you down. That's right. Okay, and they don't have the same story. Mm. And I say the same is true about whether it's criticism or praise. Mm. It's like gum. You chew on it for a while, but you don't <laughs> swallow it. Mm. That's okay. really good. Okay. Yeah. On, on, on praise or criticism... It's like, you know, when you write a book and the first sentence is called "It's not about you," yeah, right. Okay. right. <laughs> then, then you kind of got to figure uh, one: the money's not for you that comes yeah, in from it. That's right. Which we gave it all away, right? And and second, we go, the praise is not for you, but neither is the criticism. Oh, that's good. Okay, that's and, really and, good. And I, honestly, there've been many times, Brian and and Ian, that I've kind of wished I hadn't written that sentence. <laughs> okay. okay, okay. Really, many yeah, times because been there. I had no idea that for the rest of my life that sometimes I would be tested 20 times a day. Mm. And and somebody will say something mean, I go, it's not about you. Right. Somebody say something praise, it's not about you. Mm. Somebody misunderstands you, you got to say, it's not about you. Right. Mm. Somebody gets upset, it's not about you. And I, sometimes I feel like I'm having to say it like every hour. Yeah. Right. You know? That's true. And, and I didn't know that God would be testing me on it <laughs> for the rest of my life. I'm going to go, can't I just write it and forget it? <laughs> right. You know? but no. Right. <laughs> And I'm going to go, are you happy now? Right. <laughs> it's the same with sermons, though, right? No, You've said stuff true. from the pulpit, oh, and someone yeah. calls you on it 10 and hours wife, later. Your wife kind of looks at you like, right. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. 
I want to let you know that uh, Rick has a program on our show, Daily Hope with Rick Warren, that airs at 9 a.m. here on AM 1160. So want everyone to listen to that. With Rick Warren, I'm Brian Fromm. Alongside Ian Simpkins, you've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We are really excited to be joined by Rick Warren today. Uh, You're out here in the Chicago area here at Wheaton, my alma mater, and uh, for a very specific reason at the GC2 conference, Uh uh, dealing with mental health and and particularly mental health with pastors. And I know that's a huge passion of yours right now. And so I'd love for you to talk about, A, why is it a passion? Why is that growing in you? And how would you assess the mental health of pastors right now? That's a really good question. Um, The first thing is, the battle, the biggest battle you're going to have in ministry is with yourself. Mm. The biggest battle, the biggest barriers in my ministry have not been other people. It's me. Yeah. Me getting in the way of me. So true. Same. Okay. You know what I'm saying? And so the battle starts in your mind. And the, the bottom line is the Bible says the heart's deceitful and desperately wicked. What does that mean? It means I lie to myself more than I lie to anybody else. Mm. Okay. That. I tell myself sometimes things are better than they really are. Right. Yeah. Sometimes I tell myself they're worse than they really are. That's right. I'm not really a good judge of me. <laughs> I'm not really a good judge yeah. of you. Right. That's why we need mentors, models, partners, and friends, Absolutely. four different kinds of people in our lives, uh, because we can't see the forest for the tree. And so we're not really very good at evaluating ourselves. Mm. Uh, and so we need other people in our lives to kind of correct us, because the heart is deceitful. I, first place, given the right situation, I am capable of any sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I'm here in the Chicago land where two of the most famous pastors that's right. flamed out. Yep, that's right. Okay, and and I'm going. They were so close to the finish line. <laughs> right, uh, right. So yeah, close to the finish line. That's why I always suggest that you need mentors and models. Your mentors have to be live, obviously, to coach mm-hmm. you. But I suggest your models be dead. And the oh, reason, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I have live mentors, but dead models, because you don't know how their life's going to finish. So I can mentor that's you, but I can't really model wow. for you because wow. I haven't. The court's right. still out on my life. Right. See what I'm saying? So, so models. I pick somebody from history or somebody from scripture mm. for a model of mm. ministry, and go. Okay, I'm going to follow that guy because I know. The screw ups in Abraham's life, right? <laughs> okay. right but he did right. end okay, right? Okay. Right. Uh, and and but there are others who didn't. That's right. So, um, you know, that is an important thing. Is that it starts in your mind, and um, and 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 everything's broken on Earth mm-hmm. because of sin. The weather's broken. The economy's broken. Relationships are broken. Yeah, Your no body is broken. Mm-hmm. Okay, have you noticed it doesn't always work? Right? <laughs> Increasingly, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. And 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 all of us have mental illness, just like we all have other kinds of illnesses. Right, you right. See, uh, it it may be a compulsion. It may be an addiction. It may be a fear. It may be a a worry. It may be, uh, uh, you know, a shame thing. Mm-hmm. But we our minds don't always work right. Right, and. Why is it that if my heart doesn't work and I take a pill, there's no shame in that? Right, right. And if I take, uh, if my spleen doesn't work and I, or I have diabetes and I take oh. a pill, there's no shame in that. Of course. If my brain doesn't work and I take a pill, why am I supposed to keep that a secret? Yeah. Hmm. As if 
it's just another organ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so one of the things we're trying to do is remove the stigma yeah. first uh, because then it's a whole lot healthier. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we say it's not a sin to be sick. Mm. Your illness is not your identity. Your chemistry is not your character. Mm. That's really okay. good. You know, I had a young son. My youngest son took his life six mm. years ago after a lifelong battle of mental illness. It was the worst day mm. of my life. Mm. He was a brilliant young man, loved the Lord, yeah. led many people to Christ. Mm-hmm. He just lived with a claw in his brain his entire life. Wow. And when he was 17, Matthew came to me. And he goes, Dad, and in tears, we're both in tears. He said, Dad, it's, it's real obvious I'm not going to get healed. Oh, he man. said, I, I, we've been to the best doctors. Um, you've paid for the best doctors. I've had the best therapy. Uh, we've had best prayer warriors praying for right, me. Yeah. Right. Uh, Dad, you're a man of faith. Mom is a woman of great faith. Hmm. It's real clear. I'm not going to get get well. Why can't I just go to heaven now? Mm. Wow. Okay. He just wants pain relief. Yes. Right. Okay. And and so, tender heart, tortured head. Wow. Okay. Okay. His brain was not working correctly. And, of course, in tears, I mean, that'll break your heart as a father. You had your son saying, can I just go to heaven now? And I say, Matthew, I have to believe in hope. I have to believe that either, A, you'll be healed, and I don't care if God wants to do a miracle or use medicine. I'm not not picky on how God does it. Right. But I just pray for your relief. I prayed every day for this relief. But I said, Matthew, the truth is, some things don't get healed on this planet. Mm-hmm. Okay, we just need to realize this is earth, not heaven. Mm-hmm. In heaven, every the Bible says, you know, God's will is done perfectly, completely, continuously, instantly. Mm-hmm. None of that's true mm-hmm. on earth. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's a lot of stuff that is done that God hates. Mm-hmm. God is not the author of sin. Yeah. So God didn't take my son's life. Matthew took his life. Right. If if I went out and got drunk and I ran in a car accident and killed a woman with a, who's pregnant with a baby, that's my fault. Mm. That's not God's fault. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but I, I, I said, Matthew, uh, what do you do for a problem that can't be solved? Mm. Yeah. And that is you manage it. Mm. You have to manage those kind of problems, which means maybe with therapy and, and medicine and good Christian growth and you know sanctification, you will be able to manage this and even use it as a ministry to help other people. Hmm. Uh, because a lot of us have problems that are going to be chronic and lifelong. Mm-hmm. Right. Mental, physical, spiritual, whatever, relational. You know, Everybody's got problems in different areas. Right. And in those, you just have to manage them. Yeah. So um, when, uh, when Matthew died, um, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I probably got 35,000 condolence cards wow. from all around the world because wow. it, it i mean it was gut-wrenching i mean oh, to be walking gosh. through yeah. a airport and see your son's name on the cnn ticker oh my gosh matthew warren and the word suicide it, nobody should have to go through that no it, it was it was gut-wrenching and so of these thirty-five thousand cards i got the ones that actually ministered to me that helped me weren't the ones from rock stars, mm. uh, 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 prime ministers, or U.S. presidents, and mm. famous people. The ones that actually ministered to me were people who wrote me 
who had been led to Christ by my son. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And Matthew would go on suicide sites and talk people off the ledge. He said, Dad, it just doesn't work for me. I have him in constant pain. Yeah. And, and, and And they would say, I know Matthew struggled with deep depression. But he led me to Christ. Yeah, right. Wow. And and I I remember writing in my journal uh, that day. Um, in God's garden of grace, uh, even broken trees bear fruit. Wow. Mm. And I thought, but we're all broken trees. Yeah, yeah right. There are no whole trees on this planet. Right. Huh. We're all all broken. And actually, it is in our brokenness we make the biggest impact. And if there's anything I want to say to people who are listening to Common Good, it it is. If you'll be honest to God about your weakness, God will actually use it to benefit other people. That's right. That's even right. more than your strength. That's right. If I were to sit down here and I'm to sit down and spend 20 minutes with you telling you all good things I'm good at <laughs> or telling you all the cool things I've got to do, neat people I've got to be, you go, well, goody for you. <laughs> okay. So what? Yeah. whoop de doo It doesn't build koinonia. It doesn't build right. fellowship. Right. We don't feel any closer. Right. But if I say, hey. My wife and I would have been divorced after the first two years if it hadn't been for a good Christian counselor. And my wife went through breast cancer. And I had a son who took his life after lifelong suicide. And I've lived with a brain dysfunction my entire life that makes public speaking excruciatingly painful. It's my thorn in the flesh. Uh, And I I lost a son. Uh, and, And all of these things. Well, then people go, oh, my goodness. Well, if God could use Rick in yeah. spite of all that junk, right. maybe God yep. could use me. Yeah. Yes. You know what I'm saying? We actually help people more out of our weaknesses That's right. than, than we do our strengths. Our That's strengths right, don't yeah. really help people. They they actually create competition. Yes. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Uh, but 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 pain unifies. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing that all that. Was, that was wonderful. The, sure. Unfortunately, we have to close here because I know you've got places to be a week ago, another Two hours, three yeah, hours? easily. Maybe we're coming out to your library. Maybe we'll come, uh, come, set come out to the library. <laughs> we'll sit down. We'll do a, whole, we'll do a week of shows. Oh, you heard him. We're going. Yeah, you all heard him. You heard that. We're witnesses. And look, I know every place to eat in Southern California for under five bucks, and I'm a big Count spender. Count me in. Count me in. I am a big spender. Uh, as a reminder, you can hear Rick every morning on Daily Hope, which airs at 9 a.m. Yes. here on AM 1160. Rick Warren, thank you so much. Thank this you, guys. Thank you, man. Thank God you bless you. Thank you. I'm serious. Come out and see me. We'll tape a whole week in California. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. Your, your voice to God's ears. Right <laughs> do not bring your Speedos. We're, On that we're, note. We're, no, we're, no promises. 15 minutes from the beach. No Speedos. <laughs> oh, everyone will be thankful. Yeah, that, right. So. <laughs> anyway, Rick Warren, thank you so much. Free and Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we have the pleasure of being joined on the phone right now by Todd Smith. Todd uh, is part of the uh, group Selah. Uh, Selah, for 20 years, they have been constants on the music, uh, the Christian music scene. They've received eight Gospel Music Association Dove Awards, a gold-certified album, and eight number one singles. So, Todd, thanks so much for joining us today, man. Hey, Brian, thank you. And uh, Ian, and hello to everybody in Chicago. 
Yeah, you told us off air that you're down in Tennessee. That sounds a lot nicer than what we've got going on up here right now. <laughs> yeah, it's about 60 degrees oh, here. Oh, that's all right. Bad. It's time it, to hang up on them. Jeez Louise. <laughs> so, Tyler, we'll talk How's about... the wind up there? Is it good? Uh, it's, it's always windy. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like you're rubbing it in now, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> we were going to tell you about his new album, but now we're not going to do it. Uh, so uh, now we're done. There you go. There you go. So the trio Sela has an award, uh, has a new album called Firm Foundation that just released on November the 1st. And uh, I'm curious, Todd, what's it like when a new album releases? That's got to be somewhat like a mixture of excitement and kind of a nerve wracking experience. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's exciting because it's new music and stuff that it's, it's there's songs that you put your heart and soul into and. Uh, like I co-wrote four of the songs and we actually, the three of us wrote for the first time together and all the years we've been together, we've never written together. And, um, so you have that and then you're like, okay, are people going to like it? Are people going <laughs> to listen to it? Are radio stations going to play it? Are people going to come to the concerts? And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been really fun to see people responding to the songs. And obviously the concert tomorrow will be doing, uh, many of the new ones. Uh, in the first half, we kind of start off with regular music first and do songs like Wonderful Merciful or You Raise Me Up uh, and the new songs, and then we'll move on into Christmas. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's always exciting. Yeah. So one of the questions I'm, I'm always curious when talking with artists, because we have a lot of people who listen who are artists or leaders or writers or pastors, like what is it about a particular song in your mind that you think resonates or doesn't resonate? Like what, what is sort of the special sauce when you find that a certain song, like really people really gravitate towards, there's something consistent throughout the years that you've noticed. Yeah. I would say if it's something that you really connect with personally, Mm. um, that's usually my biggest gauge. Mm. Uh, So for example, um, you raise me up which a lot of people know we did it. A lot of people know Josh Groban did it. We actually recorded it before him, but there's a Swedish artist who did it, who co-wrote it and did it several years before us. And the first time I heard that song, I wanted, I listened to it like 25 times in a row. (laughs) And I could tell immediately like this song's going to connect with people. Mm. Like it's just one of those things that, you know, Um, and so I think if you're passionate about it, like especially by the end of it, um, that's a really good sign because then you can convey that. It is funny though. There are certain songs where they they're great record songs, but they're not necessarily great live. And hmm. a lot of times you don't know that until you perform. Yeah, right. There are certain songs where you're like, "Hey, yeah, this one's going to be great. This one's going to be an opener," <laughs> and then you sing it, and it's a complete dud. Just crickets. You know, as far as right. how, the, how the audience responds. So. That's something where a lot of times you can gauge that, but as far as what's going to translate from the album to live, you don't always know. You really have to just try them out. Oh, that's wild. So I'm curious. I'm always wondering, uh, do you enjoy more the process of writing and recording songs or performing songs and doing concerts? Which one do you uh, more gravitate towards? Performing. Mm -hmm. Um, Definitely much more. I. I, I don't mind the studio, but I don't love it. Um, Songwriting-wise, I've never considered myself a songwriter, um, but I've, I've dug into it more over the years. So, like, the, the first uh, songwriting sessions I did, I remember they were just so awkward. You know, it was like you're on a blind <laughs> date, and you don't know who the person is, and you right. don't know what their style is. And, you, you know, in Nashville, at least, how it works is a lot of times you'll write with someone from 10 to 1, 
uh, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. and then 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. No kidding. And wow. so you, you, you feel, and for people who do that full time, they're just used to that, you know, so they might write with a group of people and then they stop that session and they go write with someone else. For me, who I'm not like a Nicole Nordeman or Stephen Curtis Chapman or Matthew West who, you know, they go to the cabin and they write 40 songs for therapy. <laughs> right, right. I write one song and I need therapy, you know, so <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of those things that where I've, I've over the years have gone, okay, I know what my strengths and weaknesses yeah. are. I'm not good at writing a whole song. I'm good at a hook. I'm good at knowing what I want to say in mm. a particular song. So for example, um, when we did, um, I belong to Jesus, you know, it was a song I wrote with Travis Ryan and, uh, Michael Farron and, and Travis actually came with the idea, but still that idea of who is our identity, our, our identity in it's in Christ. And so keeping that there, but then writing with someone who's a good lyricist and writing with someone who's a good, uh, musician that really helps me. And you just surround yourself with people who are better than you, and mm. then they help raise you up, uh, literally. So it, it helps you helps you become a better songwriter. But I would definitely say performing and, and being with the audience, that's, that's more what I'm comfortable with. So one of the things I appreciate about groups like yours is that, um, like a lot of groups tour, and a lot of groups sell records and they write songs, but you guys are also partnering with a ministry called One Child Matters. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that specific partnership and why that's so important to you guys? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's a child sponsorship program, and I know a lot of times when people hear that immediately, they shut off, you know, their, their <laughs> brain. Um, my wife, Angie, and I sponsor um, uh, with World Vision, with Compassion, and now with One Child. We have about six kids that we sponsor Wow. The reason that One Child really has connected with us is our manager, Marcus, uh, he's from Calcutta, India, and he was uh, sponsored by a family in Memphis, a husband and wife, uh, for 14 years. And because, you know, he, he grew up in a great Christian home, um, but they were very poor. And mm. so uh, his mom and dad used to sleep on the floor, wow. so he and his sister could sleep on the bed. Um, but because of one child, that sponsorship and that couple back in Memphis, he was able to go to private school. Wow. Uh, he had dreams of becoming a musician or musician or in, in music. He knew he wanted to be in music and in ministry in the States, even though he was in Calcutta. Uh, but because of those 14 years, he was able to develop and then eventually moved to uh, Kentucky and went to a Christian school there and then uh, started interning in Nashville, and now he's full-time manager. He manages us. And so to see that dream come to fruition because of child sponsorship, it makes it so real. Because cool. it's not just, hey, sponsor a kid. Right. Do. It's, no, this is, this is someone who we work with who helps guide our career, who's on tour with us. And people will get to meet him at the uh, concert, and we're going to share a video telling his story. One of the other neat things that we've done, and Alan and Amy, um, who are also in the group with me, they came up with this idea, but they were like, why don't we just zero in on one country? Mm -hmm. Instead of it being multiple countries, let's zero in on one country and one particular area. So we are going to be, all of our kids are from the Dominican Republic. Oh, cool. And so we're going to focus in on that area. And then in about two or three years, hopefully, we're going to do a mission trip down there to go meet the kids. And then anybody who's been at a Sela concert who's sponsored a child, 
uh, has the option to come down with us and to meet their sponsored child. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And you've been referencing this concert. It's happening at Trinity Lutheran Church in Tinley Park here on Friday. And uh, so, yeah, I guess the two of you sold it out, man. So I we, just want to uh, thank you guys. We'll we, take, we, we'll were, we were originally that, yeah. having you on to kind of get people there, but then we were told it sold out. So you guys didn't need our help, but we, we'll take a little bit of credit, I guess. So, <laughs> hey, we hope that goes well. Todd, thank you so much for joining us. We hope the trip up here to Illinois goes well. And uh, we really appreciate you spending some time with us. Uh, we always love coming up to Illinois and Chicago area. I mean, all of that. It's, it's just it's such a great place, so we're looking forward to it. Great. Well, it's great to talk to you again. Uh, that is Todd Smith. He is from Sela, and uh, excited to have him join us today. For Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.